Welcome to the podcast of Faith Chapel with Pastor Richard Rogers. It's a privilege to bring this message to you, and we hope it brings you greater faith, hope, and love in the Lord. Please know that Pastor Rich prays personally for you, our listeners, each and every week. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome. This morning we are looking at the church of Pergamum, a church that was surrounded by evil influence, and I believe it was a call not to compromise. In Revelation 2, 12-17, we find John writes to these seven churches, the first being Ephesus, who had forsaken their first love, the second, Smyrna, who experienced persecution and was encouraged not to fear. Today, we're looking at the church of Pergamum. The name Pergamum means married or elevation, and I believe it was a call not to compromise. At the time, Pergamum was a center of Roman emperor worship, and those in power demanded the allegiance to worshiping a godlike emperor. There was a large throne-like altar that was built on a cliff that overlooked the city. The altar looked like a throne, and it was for the Greek god Zeus. It may be for that reason that John refers to the area as Satan's throne. A second reason for Pergamum to be said to be near Satan's throne may be because Pergamum was a center of worship for the emperor of Rome, an emperor that wielded great power at the time of history. No matter the reason, uh, everyone would know the place where John is referring. It was the city of Pergamum. With that, if you open your Bibles to Revelation 2, starting at verse 12, we'll begin there. Revelation 2, 12, to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you may, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, only known only to him who receives it. Lord, I pray that you will anoint your word, our time, 
Father, our hearts, this message, Father, in Jesus' name, we need to hear from you. Holy Spirit, have your way. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Pergamum was a home of pagan worship and cults, including Zeus, uh, Athena, and many other false gods. It was thought that Pergamum became a Roman province around 130 BC, and like Smyrna, the people participated and encouraged the worship of the Roman Empire. Pergamum was also known for its civilization and learning. Pergamum was noted for its pottery, tapestries, and parchments. The city had a library with some 200,000 volumes and was second only to that of Alexandria. Pergamum was located some 50 miles north of Smyrna and was a leading religious center in Asia Minor. Like Smyrna, the believers experienced persecution for their faith in Christ, and as John notes, the believers remained true to their faith and to the name of Christ. The double-edged sword that John refers to in verse 12, I believe is an image uh, or a picture of a weapon that was used in battle. Both sides of the sword was sharp, having two cutting edges, and no matter how it was wielded, it would cut true and deep. In verse 12, John makes a reference to Jesus as the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. In the book of Hebrews, we find the word of God is pictured as sharper than a double-edged sword. Friends, the word of God will cut true and deep to divide truth from error. Hebrews 4.12 says this, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. In Revelation 1, John also refers to the double-edged sword as the word of God being spoken by the one who holds the seven stars in his hands and who walks among the lampstands. Again, referring to Jesus. Revelation 1, 16 in his right hand, he held the seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. You see, the word of God will cut through all the spiritual false teachings and worldly lies. The word of God will separate and clearly reveal truth from error. The word of God, much like a physical double-edged sword when used properly on a battlefield and cuts deep and will kill, the word of God will accomplish all that it is designed and intends to accomplish when used correctly. It too will cut deep, but only to reveal sin and bring spiritual healing and life 
to those who believe. The Word of God is all-powerful, and it can cut through the spiritual heart of stone. But listen, if the Word of God is ignored, if the Word of God is attempted to be muzzled or imprisoned, if the Word of God is not listened to or adhered to, if the Word of God is not shared, it will do nothing for the person who is living in rebellion regarding the things of God. But remember, the Word of God is powerful. God spoke the world into existence. The Word of God will break free. The Word of God is living and active. The Word of God will not be bound. The Word of God will never be totally extinguished. The Word of God will accomplish all it is meant to accomplish. And the promises of God in Scripture and that of those promises spoken by prophets have been and are still being fulfilled. The power of God will break every chain. Faith in Christ will arise. Lives will be changed for eternity. And no power on earth, even the gates of hell, will prevail against the word of God. Roman rule was once the ruling power of the time. And the emperor word was powerful. Roman governors were placed over areas and they were divided into two classes, two camps. Those that had power of life and death, who were thought to wield the sword, and those who did not have the right to put anyone to death, these governors could not and did not wield the sword. The fact that Jesus has a double-edged sword, I believe, speaks to the idea that his authority was higher than any type of Roman governor or any type of world power. The power of Rome was limited. However, Jesus' power was that of the risen Lord, the risen Savior. The power of Satan, like Roman governors is also limited. I said last week, Jesus held the keys to death and Hades, Revelation 1.18. John is relating his vision in Revelation and the message that he brings to the churches in the beginning of his letter is to be reassuring to the believers that God knows and sees everything and that he is concerned and loves them. We saw last week that Jesus knew the person's name, and here we find that Jesus even knew where each of them lived. Jesus knew exactly where the believers were and what they were experiencing. Jesus knew and knows all about the persecution that each of those people were facing. And I want you to know that without a doubt, Jesus knows exactly what you are experiencing 
at what you are facing today and tomorrow. It wasn't easy being a Christian in Pergamum with all the idolatry and worship of false gods along with the false teaching and threats of persecution and death that were, were around every day that faced the, the Christians every day. It's not easy to remain faithful in the face of immorality and false beliefs that were being promoted throughout the city. And yet the believers stood firm in faith. They remained true to the name. The believers, as we see, were commended for refusing to recant regarding their faith. They held fast to their faith. The believers refused saying things that would lessen or stop their persecution. The persecution that the Christians were living under did not lessen their faith or courage to stand for Christ. On the contrary, I believe that many of them may have been more courageous in faith. They remained a faithful witness to those faith who had faith in Jesus. John affirms that the Christians in Pergamum were living in a city where Satan lives, a place known as Satan's throne, a place that fully embraced the center and centered around the worship of idols. Some of you, I'm sure, have heard the, the term a den of thieves. You see, a den of thieves was a place where a group of thieves or where some not-so-upstanding citizens might gather and plan a devious plot. A den of thieves or a thieves' den is, is any place that is frequented by thieves or criminals. It's not a place where, where most more, uh, moral and upstanding citizens would hang around or maybe even choose to reside or live by. And yet the Christians in Pergamum were not packing up and leaving the city. They remained in Pergamum and were strong witnesses to the truth of the gospel. They were truly a light on a hill that would shine bright in the spiritual darkness of the city of Pergamum. The Christian that John was addressing were, were people who were permanent residents of the city. They weren't transients. They weren't moving around. They were permanent residents. Jesus was not inferring that the believers should leave and move to a safer city. They were not moving away to a city without any persecution or without any presence of false gods. By saying the believers were living where Satan's throne was in fact a reference to a call of evil activity that was going on so openly embraced and participated in that city. It was a way of saying the city was a center of evil. Jesus, through John's letter, appears to commend the Christians for remaining faithful a faithful witness in the midst of such evilness. 
Last week I mentioned that Polycarp was, was martyred for his faith and that he had been burned alive. Here we find John addresses the fact that a man named Antipas, who again was a faithful follower of Jesus, is put to death in Pergamum for his faith. Tradition has it that Antipas was a disciple of John who was martyred somewhere around 92 AD. Antipas was a bishop of the Church of Pergamum, and he is believed, I'm sorry to say, to have been roasted alive in a bronze bull-like altar at the Temple of Diana. The believers in Pergamum would certainly have known or witnessed the evilness of his death, but that event did not cause them to turn or recant from their faith in Christ. Instead, the Christians of Pergamum were commended for remaining faithful, even in the face of such evilness. The faithful Christians were commended for their faith. However, some within the church were beginning to be influenced by this false teaching and this idolatry that was going on all around them. Some Christians were beginning to slowly embrace and maybe compromise their lifestyle and would soon find idolatry and immorality acceptable. Some would begin to embrace a way of life that seemed to welcome sexual immorality that was once so egregious to their hearts, in their minds, to the believer who it would quietly begin to seep into the church. The spiritual seduction that was seeping into the church was very subtle and over time would spiritually infect the entire church if not confronted. John addresses two areas that Jesus had against the church in Pergamum. The first was that they had some who were following the teaching of Balaam. The second, others were following the teaching of the Nicolaitans. It appears the church and church leaders were unaware of the spiritual seduction that was beginning to happen among the church body. Some of you may recall in the Old Testament book of Numbers how Balak, a king of Moab, tried to hire the prophet of Balaam to turn the Israelites away from serving God Almighty. In Scripture, in Numbers, I believe it's 22, and a few following chapters, Balaam tried three times unsuccessfully to curse the Israelites. He couldn't. God wouldn't allow it. Balaam could only say what God allowed him to speak over the people of Israel. Balaam could not curse the Israelites. Instead, he blessed them. Balaam, though, later came up with a scheme to seduce the Israelites and to turn the Israelites to idolatry and commit indecent acts of immorality. Balaam told the king to use Moabite women and 
with them, they would slowly and quietly seduce the people to sin. The Israelites learned through seduction and, and sexual temptation to sin against God, to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols, and were tempted into sexual immorality. Both of these practices were forbidden by God and were a form of worshiping idols. Israelites knew the practice of idolatry and sexual immorality was forbidden. They would have rejected it if it was opened and openly represented or presented to them. But you see, they were willing to accept the idea when they were seduced into believing it, into living it, and seduced to, to sin and follow the evil and selfish desires of their heart. It appears that some of the believers in Pergamum were being led astray and embracing this ungodly lifestyle, ungodly idolatry as a way of life, and the idea of that lifestyle as being okay. It may be that many in the church were unaware of the false teaching that was beginning to gain a foothold in the hearts of believers and in the heart of the church. The idea that some teaching or lifestyle is okay because some might have considered it uh, to be a, a strong Christian, to have somehow become involved in something, some compromising lifestyle. But that doesn't mean that it's okay in God's eyes. That kind of reasoning can cause a person to think, let me try that. Maybe it's okay. They may begin to think that I must have been wrong to think that X or, or Y or Z was a sin. Why did I avoid it then? It would be like the Jones who lived next door and who are Christians were to do something that is sinful and the neighbor gets the idea that it's okay because, well, if the Jones are doing it, it must be okay. Situations like that can give the impression that something is okay spiritually when in fact the Word of God teaches quite the opposite. Let me suggest that a, a new Christian or, or someone who was once spiritually bound by some previous addiction might consider the action of another Christian to be a sin when for that other Christian, they don't see it as a sin. They don't believe it's a sin and it's not a sin for them. The more mature Christian should often refrain from such liberty for the sake of the new believer, not to tempt them. That is simply to say that at times the liberty one has to do something is not spiritually wrong, but because they can cause another believer to stumble, that person who has the liberty should refrain from it in order not to cause that other person to stumble into sin. But see, that wasn't the case. That wasn't what was happening in Pergamum. In Pergamum, 
the ungodly and powerful authorities of the day promoted the worship of idols and false teaching and the worship of the emperor. They required or encouraged the participation of spiritually wrong and immoral acts that were sinful in the eyes of God. Otherwise, the person will be persecuted. Just because, let me say this, just because a powerful federal or state government makes a law and says something is legal in the eyes of the law, it doesn't make whatever it is, quote unquote, legal to be spiritually okay when the word of God clearly spells out it is being wrong. Just because a person gives a reasonable answer that sounds good, it does not make something okay in the eyes of God when it is truly sin. Just because certain shows or movies that were once considered over the line, but are now considered main line, mainstream by society, doesn't mean the temptation or evil seduction within it has any less power or evil to seduce a person. Some spicy language or the use of God's name in vain is wrong. But because some Christian friend you might know or look up to uses such language, it doesn't change the fact that using God's name in vain is any less sinful or any less egregious to God Almighty. It doesn't make it okay. Or does it? No, it doesn't. The embarrassing joke that is a bit racy or, or the immoral story that a Christian friend shared last week must be okay, right? No. It must be okay to share the joke with others that I heard the deacon share with someone at work the other day. No, it's, it's not okay. It's just as bad as when that worst sinner spoke it. John's vision to the church is as true today as it was in the first century church. Let's not be fooled or seduced into thinking some spiritual compromise or watered-down spiritual values is okay or acceptable to God Almighty. It doesn't change. We, we must always keep away from evil and remain faithful to the name and word of God. John tells the Christians in Pergamum, I have a few things against you. You see, some in the church were embracing evil teaching, ungodly teaching. Some were beginning to live immoral lives. Some were partaking in a form of idolatry worship by eating of the meat to sacrifice to idols. In other words, some were being seduced spiritually to sin and hold 
to the teaching of Balaam. The second area that John warns about is the teaching of Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans were ones who abused the biblical teaching on Christian liberty. The Nicolaitans taught that Christians had a liberty to participate in pagan orgies. What they did in the flesh didn't really matter, it, it seems. By participating in such acts, the person would begin to assimilate to the culture of that idolatry rather than being the witness of God before an ungodly society. Just both the teaching of Balaam and that of the Nicolaitans were wrong, and if not addressed, they could easily overtake the heart of the church and lead people away from God. The Israelite people fell into idolatry even when they had been warned. The Israelites over time embraced the worship of false gods, but when the people cried out to God, God delivered them from their bondage to other nations, and yet they would again turn away from worshiping the Lord God Almighty. The people never fully turned away and would slowly, over time, fall back into idolatry time and time again. John tells the Christians in Pergamum to repent. And that's what we are to do, repent. The Christian repents of their sins. Repent means to turn away to turn away from the false teaching. Otherwise, Jesus would return and the sword of his mouth, that double-edged sword that John refers to, uh, would easily divide those who were living an ungodly lifestyle from those who remained faithful to the gospel and his name. Like the churches in Revelation that we have already studied, some had forsaken their first love. Some were experienced persecution, but they were not to fear the second death. Others now have started to compromise in areas, and Jesus, through John, tells them, don't compromise. Don't follow the false and ungodly teachings of the day, of the area. Repent. As Christians, we must be aware that the enemy of our soul wants to entice whoever he can, in particular the believers, the Christians, so that they will run after sin and embrace the worship of whatever God that person desires in their heart, just so long as it's not Jesus. The enemy of your soul knows that he can get you to consider and believe some false teaching. That teaching will then take root and grow and over time overtake your spiritual heart. Remember this, a little leaven will affect the entire amount. Galatians 5, 9, a little yeast works through the whole lump of dough. I have said this before, a little sin is just as bad as some big sin in God's eyes. You see, sin is sin. 
some beliefs or false teachings that the church or some Christian holds to today may have been birthed from a false and ungodly or liberal teaching, much like the Nicolaitans. Some teaching may sound good, but because they have been influenced by civil, social, or worldly thinking rather than God, it doesn't mean that it's right. It's wrong if it doesn't follow God's word. Some ideas may sound politically or socially good or, or right. Some beliefs or acts may have an appearance of being innocent or good and yet be spiritually deadly to the Christian. See, every Christian needs to be spiritually on guard. As Christians, we need to practice spiritual discipline and study the Word of God. We need to have a sense of spiritual right and wrong and be guided by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. We should also pray and ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and then repent of any such false teachings that may have crept into our hearts, into our life, into the church. The idea that Balaam could not curse the Israelites is noteworthy to me. The idea that the enemy of our soul had to trick and lie to Eve to get her to sin is also noteworthy to me. In other words, I don't believe the devil will come straight at you and try to get you to sin. He will be devious and he will do whatever he can. Most Christians have a spiritual sense of right or wrong. The enemy of your soul knows your weakness. He knows that he will not successfully get you to turn away from Jesus unless he uses some tactic, some lie, something to seduce you, much like he inspired Balaam and the Nicolaitans to use. Some trickery, some half-truth, some seduction, some influence of someone else. See, any person can be seduced into thinking something is okay when it feeds their personal, selfish, inward desires. A person can be seduced into thinking that they are okay when in fact they are slowly and sometimes swiftly drifting away spiritually. A sinful habit doesn't happen or take root overnight. It takes time. However, when a person looks back over their life and they become aware of that sinful habit, all too often they say they didn't see it coming, they weren't aware of it. How did that happen? The person whose heart is spiritually dead and in bondage to sin and death is someone who is unaware of their spiritual situation. They are living far away from the things of God. They don't know Jesus as their Savior. They don't believe the Word of God. 
And unless that person's spiritual eyes and ears are open to the truth of the gospel, that person is destined for all eternity to live in spiritual darkness without God and find themselves in the lake of fire one day. The call to repent was before the church and is before every believer in Pergamum and today. Sin or false teaching will never uh, suppress or be suppressed or eradicated through compromise. False teaching will never go away or stop if ignored. It will only grow and become more and more effective in that person's life and destructive in a church. The New Testament church was taught how to deal with sin and false teaching in the church. 1 Corinthians 5.9 starts with this. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or, or, or the greedy swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. In other words, a believer is, was to repent and live a life of faith and avoid a compromised life and associating with those who claim to be believers, but were living a totally opposite life. I need you to notice something once again, that believers in Pergamum were not encouraged to leave the city. They were encouraged to remain faithful. The believers were not told to move away from Satan's throne. Instead, they were told to uh, repent and to be victorious, to be overcomers in that city. They were told to have ears to hear and listen to what the Spirit says. And with that, John tells the Christians two things that Jesus will give to the overcomers. The first being the, I will give some the hidden manna. Second, I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. The hidden manna, I believe, represents Jesus as the bread of life who came down from heaven. John 6, 48, I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the white stone. This may have several meanings, but let me leave you with this. It was a Roman custom to award a white stone to those who were victors in athletic contests. A white stone 
would have a person's name inscribed on it. And it was like a ticket for entry into special award banquets and events. John tells the overcomer will receive a white stone with a new name inscribed on it, known only to him who receives it. A name, I believe, that is written down in heaven. A name that I believe speaks of that person as being a believer in Christ. A name that allows that person into glory and the marriage supper of the Lamb. Much like Pergamum, evil in society is all around us. And it is attempting to infiltrate your heart, the church, the very souls of every believer. May we always allow the Holy Spirit and pray that the Holy Spirit would search our hearts and then let us repent and turn from whatever sin that might be revealed to us. Not allowing spiritual compromise to gain a foothold within our hearts. I want to close and pray for you. Maybe some of you know Christ as Lord and Savior. Maybe some of you don't who are listening. Maybe some of you have allowed things in your life and been, uh, been lax, let's say, and haven't been so vigilant in keeping things out of your life. You've allowed, you have friends and, or whatever and non-Christian friends that have allowed things in their life and, and, have, and, and you've somehow embraced that. I want to pray for you that, that much like the believers in Pergamum, that you would hold on to the name, that you would repent Push back the false teaching the, and not compromise. Lord, I pray that you will move mightily upon our hearts and our lives. Lord, work in me first. Lord, if there's something in my life that is not pleasing, that is sin that I have allowed in my heart, Lord, reveal it to me that I need to change from and turn from, repent from, and seek your forgiveness. Lord, I pray for the church. I pray for Faith Chapel, but whatever church, a church member or someone is attending, that, Father, that they would run after and follow hard the things of God. That false teaching, evil intent, would be confronted if it needs to be confronted. And Lord, that you would be lifted up. I pray for the grace of God, the mercy of God, the love of God over each of our lives. I pray. Lord, I thank you for the manna, the hidden manna. I thank you for the white stone. I thank you for the new name that you give every believer. And Lord, we look forward to your return. We look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We look forward to hearing the words, enter in 
good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name, for your glory and praise. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to Pastor Rich Rogers with Faith Chapel Church in Pleasanton, California. If you've been encouraged by this message, we'd like to hear from you. You can contact us, listen to other sermons, and learn more at agfaithchapel.org. If you would like to give to the Ministry of Faith Chapel to reach the community and our missionaries around the world, go to agfaithchapel.org give. Thank you and God bless you.